Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Emory University political science professor Andre Gillespie acknowledges that the election of Barack Obama as the country's first black president was an event of immense importance in American history. So the fact that Obama was able to make it past the nomination stage and to win the presidency shows tremendous racial progress in this country. Now, Gillespie has published a book looking at crucial questions about the impact of the Obama presidency. Did his tenure in the White House change the status of African Americans for the better? How did his approach to issues of race influence black perceptions of him? And what should we make of the Obama legacy in the age of Donald Trump? Andre Gillespie joins me to talk about those questions and much more, but first the news. Live from the GPB Newsroom, good afternoon. I'm Drew Dawson. Just ahead, it is Political Rewind with Bill Nygut. But first in GPB News, the first of six regional forums addressing the mental health of Georgia's children was held at the Carter Center this week. The goal is to connect providers with schools to improve school-based mental health care statewide. Maribel Bell is the director of student discipline for the Fulton County School District. She says children are receptive to help when they can get it. Most kids will do what we ask them as long as we set the structure up for them and treat them like respected individuals. According to the Centers for Disease Control, more than 18% of Georgia children have a diagnosed mental health disorder. Recently, Governor Brian Kemp pledged more than $8 million to increase the number of mental health providers in Georgia schools. And the commander of Glynn County's recently disbanded drug squad has resigned. Police Chief John Powell says Captain David Hassler was facing disciplinary action. The Brunswick News reports that the investigation found Hassler failed to act on information about the misconduct of a detective under his command. The drug squad was disbanded after the investigation found that James Casada had inappropriate sexual relationships with two confidential informants. He resigned in February. Investigators say several officers came to Hassler with information about Casada. The district attorney says the revelation of wrongdoing could jeopardize a couple hundred drug cases. And in sports, the Atlanta Braves fell to the Arizona Diamondbacks last night, 9-6. to They square off in game two of their series tonight at 7:20. For more Georgia news, go to gpbnews.org. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include UMA, a cloud-based phone service for small businesses with features to automatically route and provide custom messages to callers. UMA, the smartphone for your business. More at OOMA.com. Glad to have you with us today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we have a special show 
for you today, one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. You know, um, those of you who listen to us pretty regularly know that a couple weeks ago we spent uh, our show talking to Buddy Darden, who is a regular panelist on the show. And it was great to do that, to talk about his life, his career, because there are people who do this show with some regularity who talk about issues. You get to hear how they feel, where they stand on various issues. But you don't know as much about their lives as we'd like you to. And uh, we're going to try that throughout the uh, summer months uh, to have some of our regulars come in and, and spend time with us talking about themselves. Dr. Ander Gillespie, professor of political science at Emory University, offers us an opportunity to do just a little of that today. Uh, but in the context of a new book, we've talked, Dr. Gillespie, about your book for months, saying first when Years, you were trying to finish it up yeah. and you were doing reading the proofs on the book. And it was finally published around Valentine's Day? March, beginning of March. Beginning of March. Race and the Obama administration, substance, symbols, and hope, right? Yes. So before we talk about that book and get into a conversation about the incredible data mining you did to come to the conclusions you did about mm-hmm. President Obama's impact on, on black life in, in, in America and how he was viewed by African-Americans during his tenure. Let's just talk about your journey a little bit. You grew up in Virginia, right? Where? Right outside Richmond. So when did this political science bug hit you? Did you, even as a young girl, were you attracted to American history, to politics? How did that happen? So I credit my parents with making me watch the news for the reason why I'm a political scientist. Like, they weren't as vigilant with my younger brother about those things, which is why he sells insurance today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And if you want a good lead on a life insurance policy, I can definitely hook you up. Um, But, yeah, my parents made me watch the news. um, And I'm actually really grateful for that. I think, one, it gave me an appreciation of journalism. But, two, it just made me very interested in current events. And in school, social studies was my favorite subject. So I wouldn't have... I don't know if I would have thought that I would be a political scientist studying race today. I did go to a special high school whose focus was on government and international studies. Um, so there you could take a bunch of languages and, you know, it, social studies was required throughout the curriculum. So, you know, I had social studies for all four years. So that included like two years of world history, a year of uh, U.S. history, a year of European history in addition to taking government. Yeah. Um, and so it was pretty clear that I was going to go, you know, major in either history or government, as the case was at the University of Virginia. So I want to back you up for a step, if uh-huh. you don't mind. Uh, you were, I, I, you know, I have no idea, nor do I want you to tell me exactly. I've never known how old you are. So I, I, I say that because I don't really ask you to tell me. But I'm wondering the era of TV news for you. Who was the anchor that you watched? Which newscast did your family watch? Were you NBC, CBS? What did you watch? So growing up, uh, it was CBS. And in my head, I remember Walter Cronkite. (laughs) But the calendar says, no, that I was really young. Now, I might have some residual memories of Walter Cronkite kind of being the senior person who showed up. But I was watching during the, the Dan Rather era. Okay, I mean... And the reason I ask that, of course, is for people who do remember when network news was the dominant force in broadcast in delivering the yep. news before cables. Uh, it was in my family. It was did you watch Huntley Brinkley on NBC <laughs> or did you watch Cronkite on CBS? And, and it's just sort of an interesting uh, exercise in understanding uh, 
where you got your news from and uh, who were the real heroes of news for you. So that's why I ask you that. So um, you're... You focus, of course, on political science in a broader way. By the way, were you ever one of those young people in high school who did the uh, What the Constitution Means to Me essay writing contest? The American Legion, I think, sponsored those? No, I never did that. So um, the high school that I went to was for government and international studies. So I actually thought I was going to go more the IR route. Um, I kind of got into my head that I was going to be an international lawyer. I was going to try cases before the International Criminal Court. I might try to be a foreign service officer. And so I did Model UN from 10th uh, grade until I graduated from college. Wow. Um, so I really thought that that was the direction. The fact that I do American politics now, I, you know, I don't know if anybody would have actually predicted that that was going um, to be my path. So it's important to say that while we talk about you in the broadest terms as a political science professor, and you, you do teach some survey classes that are <laughs> fairly generalized, uh, there, you also have um, a specialty and an expertise in African-American political science. At, at what point do you remember, and because I do think it comes into play mm -hmm. in how you talk about President Obama and his impact in this book, um, at what point did you really become conscious of the fact that being a young African American in society was going to place you in a place, you were going to be in a place where you understood that there were certain aspects of your life that were different from your white friends and colleagues. So, I mean, that's different from the intellectual journey into okay. studying it. I think as a child, and I would, you know, ask my friends who are developmental psychologists to sort of correct me on this, I get the sense that this happens relatively early. Um, for young people of color, that they'll probably become cognizant of race probably earlier than their white peers will be. And that's part of the privilege of whiteness is to not have to recognize those things yeah. early. So for me and for other people in my family, usually the recognition comes around age four. Um, and so um, I tried to change my race uh, with my mother. Um, and so she, she didn't quite say it in that way, but I remembered sort of like what I tried to do. And so I came up with this really crazy idea so that I was going to go to the other side of the world to sort of become a member of a different race. I, I picked one that was also uh, marginalized and oppressed. And so my mom looked at me like, well, that's crazy. Um, and it was something that I didn't think about later until, you know, I think about uh, conversations that I've had with my cousins around the time that they were four years old, where they were trying to figure out where the color line was. So I come from an African-American family where people's skin tones very sort of widely. So we have very light-skinned people and very dark-skinned people. And one of my cousins was trying to figure out who was black and who wasn't in the family. Yeah. Um, and it was mainly one of those types of experiences where she was like, well, wait a minute. So wait a minute. So that person is black, too? It was like, yeah, actually, yeah, they're wow. black, too. But because they didn't have the same color that she did, she couldn't quite figure it out. Um, one that I actually thought was really poignant and really astute was I was watching old TV uh, with my niece, who's five, and she was looking at the television. She wanted to know how you could tell who was black and who was white. She just couldn't tell because it was in black and white in the shades. So I explained. It was, I think, my three sons. So I was like, uh, yeah, they're all... They're all white. Well, of course they were. Everybody was white on TV then, weren't well, they? <laughs> I pulled out my, mo my mother's high school graduation picture, which was also black and white or, you know, kind of sepia toned as it's aged. And she looked at that picture and it was, wait a minute, Gigi's black? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so she was trying to figure out. So, you know, she could still tell that she was still trying to, to figure those things out. So, you know, for me, it happened around the time that I was that I was four. OK, thank you 
for sharing just a little bit of your personal uh, uh, journey because um, I really do think in a way it, it leads us into talking. We know that in your, as you said, there's a difference between your personal journey and your intellectual uh, development. Uh, we know that you uh, did obviously go on to the point where you're now uh, one of the you're a really highly respected political science professor. You uh, appear on the. You not only get to do political rewind. You're on the. You, you know. You're on CNN brings you in with some regularity. I think you do MSNBC uh, sometimes. sometimes. Uh, Eleven Alive mm-hmm. has you come in as their political analyst during election season. So you've become a really well known. Uh, uh, analyst of what's happening in the political world, it, certainly in, in Atlanta and beyond. And you know we love having you on Political Rewind. So with all that in mind, let's talk a bit about uh, your book. So if you don't mind, I, I, let's start with the quote that you have at the very beginning okay. of your book. And I'll ask you, it's from Young Jeezy. Mm-hmm. It's a rap that Young Jeezy, the rapper, wrote, and I'll read it, uh, part of it, what you put in the start of the book. My president is black, my Lambo's blue, Lamborghini, Mm -hmm. and I'll be GD if my rims ain't too. My mama ain't at home and daddy's still in jail trying to make a plate. Anybody seen the scale? Why did you open the book with uh, Young Jeezy? So, really interesting story. Um, I was out to dinner with, turns out, a black Republican. And this was right after Obama got elected, or it was during the campaign. And and I remembered when we were, when we, he was taking me back home, he played this song. Knowing for sure that he was never going to vote, that he didn't vote for President Obama. But yet, this was, there was a certain pride in the election of a black president. And so we could talk about sort of how African-Americans as a whole took pride in having broken that really high, hard glass ceiling. But then it becomes a question of, well, what does one get from that? And so I want to think about all of those things together. So we want to think about what African-Americans get, got as a result of having a black president. Do you just get symbols? And then also think about how do African-Americans interpret this presidency sort of in the context and through the prism of the, their pride in having elected an African-American Yeah, man. You, you say it very uh, well, in, 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 as you just did. In the, and in the book, you say uh, the lyrics, Young Jeezy's lyrics, juxtapose the pride in the prospect of having a black president with the gritty reality of a black life that might not change outwardly because of that presidency. And that's a, a good deal of what you try to uh, to explain mm-hmm. and to, to break down using the data uh, that you've uh, established in your book. So with that in mind, um, there's no question as a starting point that the election of Barack Obama was a milestone of significance almost almost beyond quantifying. Mm-hmm. Yes? Yes. Um but it's a question of so what? And so in part, I'm having a dialogue with other people who have written on the subject matter. And so especially amongst uh, people who are studying African-American politics and African-American public intellectuals, there was this tension with the Obama administration. There was clearly pride in the election of President Obama's president, but there was a frustration that Obama didn't do more on behalf of African-Americans. And there were certainly seemed to be really high expectations on the pa- on the part of, of, of black elites to sort of push him to do more and sometimes a frustration that 
um, everyday rank and file African Americans were not pushing President Obama to do more on behalf of African Americans. And as a result, we were going to get a lot of symbolic things from the Obama administration, but not a whole lot of substantive things from the Obama administration. So I kind of wanted to interrogate these arguments a little bit more. Um, the first thing I wanted to do was I actually wanted to be sure that I was clear about the measurements in terms of how black life had changed or had not changed over the Obama administration, because that will address this first question that blacks didn't get anything under President Obama. And then once we establish that, then we can look at, well, what did the administration try to do on behalf of African Americans? Um, so part of it is looking to see whether they succeeded, whether they tried and failed, mm. or whether they didn't do anything, or whether they actually worked against African-American interests. And then I want to sort of look at the symbolism, because I think most people sort of agreed that the election of President Obama was symbolically important. And so I, I just want to provide a little extra depth and a little bit more data and detail about what things were symbolically different about the Obama administration. And then I want to ask well, what did African-American voters actually really think about this? Uh, so using some really small data sets, so, you know, talk about sort of data limitations there, but small data sets, one of the things I can look at is how African-American voters responded to and reacted to Obama in ways that uh, black public intellectuals and scholars, uh, you know, who were both one and the same, but sometimes just yeah. doing it in different venues or different ways, maybe missed and so how sort of like their uh, how the black mass view of obama might actually be very different than the black intellectual view of obama so let, let's if i can sure. uh go back because that you just laid out what the conversation that we can have can be but let, let's go back to kind of a starting point in terms of all this if i can you use it throughout the campaign uh obama you, you use a, a a word that mm -hmm. I never thought about. You say that, I mean, I knew it was true, but I never applied the label. He ran a deracialized right. campaign for president. Right. What does that mean to you? So deracialization is a term that was actually first coined in the 1970s by Charles Hamilton, political scientist at Columbia who helped co-write uh, co Black Power with Stokely Carmichael. Um, and Hamilton was worried in the 1970s about the exodus of whites from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And he was really concerned about Richard Nixon's Southern strategy that was, you know, appealing to Southern Democrats. It was also appealing to Archie Bunker Northern Republicans um, who, you know, maybe harbored racial fears or racial resentments and thus were uh, being drawn to the Republican Party. So he was interested in trying to offset the use of coded racial language about things like busing in law and order to try to to say that the Democratic Party is still a welcoming home. And what he advocated doing was not changing the party platform and changing the policy priorities that would actually help African Americans and were you know, intended to try to uh, reduce inequality. But he actually talked about framing them in different ways and always framing them in more universalistic terms uh, so as to reach out to a broader spectrum of the population. African Americans would still be drawn to these things, but if you talk about sort of healthcare as something in broad and inclusive terms that everybody would see buy-in if you want great schools for all children, right, then everybody feels that they have buy-in even if you're also going to do some things that might actually, you know, sort of have targeted remedies for children of color. This really kind of comes to the fore in the late 1980s when we see black politicians getting elected in majority white jurisdictions. Now, this wasn't, 89 was not the first time that it happened. We could go back to Tom Bradley's election, for instance, in Los Angeles, Los Angeles. Um, where we see similar types of strategies. But it really kind of comes to the forefront in 1989 when Doug Wilder and David Dinkins and Norm Rice. First black Rice, Virginia governor. Right. And Kurt Schmoke, they're all getting elected at about the same time. 
And they were getting elected mostly in majority white jurisdictions um, where, you know, you could not put an all black coalition together and actually win elections. And so they were doing it by tending to de-emphasize race, by presenting themselves in non-stereotypical fashions, not looking like they're actually directly appealing to African-American audiences, so limiting one's public appearances and all black spaces in an attempt to try to make themselves more comfortable with non-black, particularly white audiences. And nobody questions the efficacy of this type of strategy, particularly in contexts where you have lots of, of, of non-black voters in a jurisdiction. But normatively, it raises the question of whether or not you get the descriptive representation yeah. of black politicians yeah. without the substantive sort of addressing of issues it, of concern. I, I, it seems in, in speaking of the Obama candidacy, there's a, there was a certain brilliance mm -hmm. to his de-emphasizing race while all around him. He was being surrounded by uh, uh, those who were raising questions about an African-American being president of the United States. There was a certain racist tone to mm -hmm. some of the campaigning against him. He he refused to engage through a great deal of uh, much of that. Right. And it did seem to me to be a strategy that suggested I'm not going to go there. I'm the president. I plan to be a president for all the people. So I see that as mm -hmm. the plus side. Right. But, but the mind, there are a couple of minuses to think about. So one, you can attempt to be racially transcendent. Um, and if one's opponents want to play dirty um, and you don't respond to it in kind, then it can upend a candidacy. So, for instance, you know, when I teach this to my students, I'll use examples like Harvey Gantt in, in North Carolina when he ran against Jesse Helms and that infamous hands ad about affirmative action. Um, Harold Ford in Tennessee with that ad with the blonde woman, Harold, call me, yeah. um, you know, and not responding to those ads like, like those are the kinds of things where you could try to transcend race, but if everyone else around you is not attempting to transcend race, then that could actually cause problems for you. So you have to respond to racist attacks. But the big concern, the concern that uh, a lot of scholars have had about this, is that if you elect a black politician who de-emphasizes race, who de-emphasizes race, what they may be making is an implicit bargain with their non-black constituents that they're not going and, to talk about race. And... And as we'll see, I mean, as your book lays out so we can't even begin to go through all the wonderful data points we have in here. But if you do de-emphasize race, uh, at a certain point, you can't go into your whatever office it is claiming to have a mandate for doing something about racial injustice, social equality right. issues, and that sort of thing. And one of the things that was frustrating, probably, I mean, as a white guy, it frustrated me at times, we know that when he was inspired to do it, Barack Obama could be the most eloquent spokesperson on behalf of social justice of anyone out there. And, and if it's okay, mm -hmm. as we talk about that, let's listen to just, he didn't do it often. Mm -hmm. But when the Jeremiah Wright controversy arose, Jeremiah Wright, of course, his pastor at his church yeah. in Chicago, uh, dirt about, uh, I don't even remember some of the things that Jeremiah Wright was saying in his sermons, but they were viewed as anti-American, right. right? I mean, we don't even have to go into it. And for it's interesting you say that, that at a certain point you've got to respond mm -hmm. uh, because you can't just be, uh, you can't ignore it for too long. And so we reach a moment where Barack Obama, I think it's 2008, yeah. gave one of the most eloquent speeches you could ever ask to hear about racial injustice in this country. Let's just listen to a little bit of it now. I'm the son of a black man. 
from Kenya and a <coughs> white woman from Kansas. Is this all right so far? I was raised with the help of a white grandfather who survived a depression to serve in Patton's army during World War II and a wild white grandmother who worked on a bomber assembly line at Fort Leavenworth while he was overseas. I've gone to some of the best schools in America and I've lived in one of the world's poorest nations. I am married to a black American who carries within her the blood of slaves and slave owners, an inheritance we pass on to our two precious daughters. I have brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, and cousins of every race and every hue scattered across three continents. And for as long as I live, I will never forget that in no other country on earth is my story even possible. It's a story that hasn't made me the most conventional of candidates. But it is a story that has seared into my genetic makeup the idea that this nation is more than the sum of its parts. That out of many, we are truly one. That speech, Andre, was considered so important the New York Times the next day published the entire text. Yeah. And that speech is really controversial yeah. in African-American intellectual circles Why? for a number of reasons. So, one, he had to do it from a deracialization standpoint. So that's his Jesse Helms hands moment. That's his white girl at the Playboy party moment. So if he didn't address it, it was going to upend his candidacy. So that's why David Axelrod let him do it, because David Axelrod did not want to touch race with a 10-foot pole. And he was actually pretty transparent about that in his interview uh, with the late Gwen Eiffel in her book, The Breakthrough. Um, so he had to address it, so he did. And it's a question of how he chose to address it. So he tended to talk about race in broad universal, universalistic terms. He can invoke his own biracial ancestry and the fact that uh, given uh, uh, his parents' uh, partnerships with uh, not just uh, each other but with their other spouses, he had uh, siblings who could claim basically every racial identity, um, almost every racial identity imaginable. Um, so he's creating this kind of transcendent tone, but in the speech he's distancing himself from Jeremiah Wright. Um, and so from a, a racialization standpoint, yeah. right, some people actually looked at that somewhat as a betrayal because in terms of what Jeremiah Wright was saying in terms of critiquing America for racism, he was being brutally honest. He was not using the Lord's name in vain um, in that context. But, you know, a lot of people looked at that actually as a betrayal. And that's the kind of stuff that they're afraid of. See, that that perspective is so important and so interesting to me and in some ways tells us the difference between me as a white observer uh, and you as an African-American and the community that you come out of and mm -hmm. that I come out of, I came away from that speech thinking, well, from a pragmatic standpoint, he had to distance himself. And I then appreciated the soaring rhetoric he was able to invoke. But you point out that in the, in the black community, uh, he, it was a betrayal of a beloved pastor in on the, uh, in the Chicago uh, religious community. Yeah, I mean, and so there, I mean, and not, and this is not to say that every African American well, sure. would well, have not that man, particular. You're not point a of part view. of a monolithic group, and right. neither am I. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and so there's some people who would see that as actually being really pragmatic. But the critique that's often levied against President Obama, this idea that he would upbraid blacks for behavior that might be perceived as uncouth or irresponsible or, or these other kinds of things, this is a common trope that he's going. Going to be critiqued on for the rest of his life yeah um basically and and you know and it comes out in a certain way in um how he distanced himself from jeremiah right in the a, a more perfect union speech one of the things that you uh look at in the book is the promises that he made to various constituencies during his candidacy 
I think I'm right that you conclude, after researching this, that he made the most promises to women, veterans, and the poor. Am I right about that? Not necessarily to African Americans. Um, you examine him. I have it here. I should have pulled up the exact table. But you say here's what you say. Of the groups examined, Obama made the most promises to women's veterans and the poor. 23 promises, 4.3% addressed women's issues, 32 or 6% affected veterans. By far, President Obama issued more promises designed to affect poverty. 74 promises or nearly 14% were intended to address issues of concerns uh, to the poor. And then you go on and say that about 6% of the promises Mm -hmm. he made were to the black community specifically. So uh, President Obama made an equal number of promises in PolitiFact as I code them to blacks and veterans. By far, he made more promises uh, about issues related to poverty. Um, And so one could argue that he was using poverty as a code for African-American. And so, uh, you know, we want to make certain types of, of, of distinctions there and sort of argue whether or not we can argue about whether or not that's appropriate. The thing that I'm trying to do with that particular analysis is to address the concern that was raised by some of my colleagues in other writing that Obama didn't actually do a lot for African-Americans. And that, in fact, he focused on other constituencies who um, argued and clamored for more things. So when he when you conclude that there was this uh, the the largest number of promises surrounded uh, promises to the poor, he very well might have been speaking to the African-American. That might that might be the intent, but I'm also interested in the number of promises that were kept. And so it's not just how many one makes, right. but it's also how many they keep. And right. so actually from a percentage standpoint, he kept more promises that I code as having some sort of target toward African-American communities than he made to the poor and kept. Right. And in particular, there was an argument made. I don't test the part of this here, but uh, there was an assertion made in another uh, writing that Obama did more for the Tea Party and for the LGBTQ community than he did for African-Americans. Um, and so I don't code for promises directed toward the Tea Party um, in the PolitiFact data set. I do code for promises made toward the LGBTQ community. How, how, do, how do people conclude that he made more promises to the Tea Party? I get the LGBT community right. part of it. Well, I mean, I think the issue was is that he was more responsive to them because they were very vocal okay right and that he had to sort of figure out how to adapt to and to respond to that and of course they were founded largely in response in response to the policies that obama right. was uh, initiating as right. president um so you know so I, I can't really code for the for the tea party i can code for the lgbtq community and one of the things that i look at is that he made very few promises now he kept most of them but overall, like it's seven promises. Yeah. He made 32 promises to African-Americans. He kept 18 of them. Okay. Right. So I think it is unfair to, to actually just say that because the promises that were made to the LGBTQ community, which were very high profile promises like ending Don't Ask, Don't Tell and supporting marriage equality. Right. So somebody could argue, well, maybe I should have weighted them differently. Right. And say that the promises that were made toward African-American communities, you know, kind of pale in comparison because it doesn't include stuff like the voting rights. Act or the Civil Rights Act in them. But I'm counting them all and weighting them equally. And I'm pointing out, you know, he did not neglect African-Americans in his promises and actually in terms of keeping his promises, because his promise kept rate is actually pretty comparable for African-Americans as it is to many other constituency groups. Okay, Um, I I just looked up at our show clock. You know, I could listen to you for the next hour and not even think about the time, but I'm already really late for the first break in the show. Let me get a break in and when we come back more with Dr. Andre Gillespie.
This spring here at GPB, our goal is to cover the cost of the programs you love and hopefully eliminate the spring fund drive. How? Well, instead of cutting into the programs you listen to on GPB, like we do during a traditional fund drive, you'll hear short reminders like this one. We're calling it GPB Stealth Drive. Hi, I'm Tom Barclay, GPB's Radio Operations Manager. People who listen just like you're doing right now provide the single most important and reliable funding for everything you hear on GPB. So right now, we're counting on your support. So while you're thinking about it, call 800-222-4788, 800-222-4788, or donate online at gpb.org. Because public radio matters to you, do it now, and thank you so much. I have one guest on Political Rewind uh, today, Dr. Andra Gillespie, Emory University political science professor, whose new book is Race in the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope. You've done such an extraordinary amount of research that tells us a lot about the impact of uh, President Obama and on how African-Americans in return viewed him as he worked on their behalf. Mm -hmm. And you've already told us that the uh, previous... uh, speculation that he may not have done as much as he could for African-Americans, your data shows that's not really quite true, right? Well, so, in terms of campaign promises. So okay, it wasn't that he okay. didn't talk about race on the campaign Yeah, trail yeah, no, no, all. I understand that. Yeah. All right. You do another thing in your book that uh, I, I loved, and that's looking at how African-Americans responded to him. Uh, and <laughs> you cite a sketch that was a repeated sketch on Saturday Night Live that Kenan Thompson, mm-hmm. uh, who's still a member of that <laughs> cast, uh, led. It was, uh, how's he doing? Mm-hmm. And he did it on a number of occasions. It was uh, Kenan Thompson as the host of the show called How's He Doing, uh, talking to African-American panelists about how Obama's doing. Let's just listen. You, in the book, have a transcript of Mm -hmm. one of those sketches. I found a different one, but let's just listen for a minute. All right, well, welcome to How's He Doing, the show where the black voter takes a look at President Obama and asks, how's he doing? Some good news for the president as an uptick in the economy has boosted his approval rating to 50% amongst all voters. But some disappointing news is his approval with black voters is down all the way to (laughs) 99.2%. So President Obama, he promised a lot in his campaign, and we have to admit he has not delivered on all of it. That's true. Indeed, indeed. Unemployment is high, and the income gap is as large as it's ever been in our nation's history. Unacceptable. True. So the question is, would you consider voting for Mitt Romney or Rick Santorum? Which brings us to this week's What Would It Take, where we ask, what would it take for Barack Obama to lose your vote? Would President Obama lose your vote if he repealed health care? Nope. I would just wear a warmer coat. <laughs> just a little bit from Saturday Night Live. How, do, how true to life is uh, that sketch? So the numbers are wrong. Okay. And I, 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 I have to say this because there was uh, one point Michael Chase said at the beginning of the Trump administration that Trump had issued 18 um, executive orders. It had been eight up until that point. And when I went in like the next week in class and told my students that they all challenged me because they had heard it differently on Saturday <laughs> Night Live. So it's like, yeah, got to take satire with a grain of salt. So like, you know, the idea is kind of in the ballpark. The n- 
numbers might not actually be there. Um, I talk about that, you know, in the book with the sketch that I use, which is with Kerry Washington as the guest. Yeah. It sounds to me like that was Maya Rudolph. Yes, it was okay. Maya Rudolph. And, really um, good, Andre. I watch enough Saturday Night Live. And, uh, you know, President Obama's numbers remain stratospheric amongst African-Americans his entire presidency. Um, it's a bad week for him in the Gallup poll where his approval rating falls below 80 percent. And I think that happened about five times over the course of his presidency. Um, and so there are a number of reasons to um, explain that. So party is part of it. Um, African-Americans are overwhelmingly Democratic and Barack Obama's a Democratic president. So, um, you know, he enjoyed really high approval ratings amongst them just on, on the basis of party identification. Um, usually when the economy is going well, then African-Americans uh, will uh, reward the president uh, with that, right? Because that tends to help African-American communities. And so the inverse relationship that he's talking about there. Uh, usually is not the pattern that we would expect to see in the data. Um, but the, the sketch that I look at, uh, people talk about what expectations look like. And so one of the things that was actually really interesting um, was uh, Kerry Washington's character and Jay Farrow's character discussing the ways that they would, um, you know, that their expectations were muted, right? So they knew not to expect miracles because Barack Obama was elected president. And so that gave them a certain level of patience. Um, and that was something that I certainly saw in the data that I look at. So I do a couple. So, you know, I'm, I'm not talking to hundreds of people. I, I talked to, to, to a handful of people in Virginia, in both Northern Virginia and in the Richmond area um, in 2014. And so I could see the things that they appreciated about President Obama. Um, and I could also see the ways that they were willing to critique President Obama. So, um, you know, um, respondents, you know, in Richmond sort of said, you know, I don't necessarily agree on all the social issues, but overall, I think he's a good president. One of the respondents uh, made very clear uh, that, you know, Obamacare was all she needed to continue to support President Obama because she got to support a disabled adult son on her health care. Um, the uh, respondents who are in Northern Virginia were business owners, mm -hmm. um, some of whom had access to federal contracts. And so, you know, they were worried about the new regulations that would come as a result of Obamacare. I mean, there were some serious questions about those things, but they were making their decision to continue to support Obama as opposed to having voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 was because they just thought that he was the better person. So even though they didn't like everything about him and were actually pretty honest and open about that, they were like, well, he was the better choice of the two options. Um, and so I take that qualitative data and then actually pair it with more quantitative data from um, some surveys that I have access to where I had uh, African large enough African-American samples that I could run some numbers. And so, you know, in general, you still see the stratospheric job approval ratings or sort of, you know, the majority of people saying that they're overwhelmingly um, supporting Obama in 2012. But we do see some nuance. And so if you come from the topmost level down to the bottom level, you know, it's usually because you disagreed with Obama about something. You felt that he disappointed mm -hmm. um, on issues related to race. And so the fact that I can still detect these small differences, they're small differences, but that they're differences suggests that the idea that the African-American voter is incapable of sort of critical thinking about President Obama or that, you know, that they everybody just blindly followed him and agreed with him on everything, I just think is not, you know, really borne out by the data or by experience. I think uh, that leads me to ask you, I think an overarching question that you look at, mm -hmm. and I, I don't think you would be so bold as to say you resolved it completely, but a big part of what you were trying to uh, uh, decide uh, with your data was, did the presidency of Barack Obama change the status of African Americans in the United States? And 
I thought you have a chapter heading that I think kind of relates to that. Mm -hmm. Was Obama a paddling duck? Meaning, was it all, you know, I guess you're, you're talking about the, you know, is it all on the surface? What's really going on underneath? Right. What did you conclude in your data about Obama's impact on the status of blacks in America? So, I mean, there are a couple of things that I want to look at. First, I want to contend with the critique um, that some of my colleagues had made that nothing changed for African-Americans materially. Um, and so I look at a lot of key economic indicators. So I look at unemployment and labor participation. I look at household income and wealth by race. I look at home ownership. I look at uh, high school graduation rates. I look at life expectancy rates. So there's a lot of stuff that does not change. So if we look at the course of the Obama presidency, um, you know, we'll see that oftentimes the inequalities don't change at all. So, for instance, uh, we see um, a very, very, very slight change in the ratio of black to white unemployment. So historically in the United States, as far back as I've been able to look in Bureau of Labor Statistics data, blacks are typically about twice as likely to be unemployed as whites. So even sort of in times of great wealth and largesse where we have record low unemployment, like when President Trump touts that record low unemployment amongst African-Americans, it's still about, you know, twice, 1.9 times as, as high as it is in the in the, in the white community. That's actually, that, that's that been a systemic problem in the United States. Mm -hmm. That doesn't change under President Obama, um, even with the Great Recession. So it's just that everybody's just, there are more people sort of in each group who are unemployed. Um, if we look at household income, blacks are still lagging whites significantly in terms of uh, income. If we look at wealth, like those huge wealth disparities um, are massive and, you know, that's true and they were exacerbated by the Great Recession. Um, if we look at home ownership rates. Um, you know, home ownership rates fall for all groups uh, as a result of the Great uh, Recession, uh, but they fall for African-Americans that already had low home ownership rates, and they didn't look like they were rebounding as quickly for blacks as they did for um, whites and Latinos. Um, on the bright side, if we look at uh, the gap in terms of high school graduation rates, the gap, the narrowing gap between blacks and whites in terms of high school graduation kind of continued to narrow slightly um, over the course of the Obama administration. There's still gaps there. Um, if we look at life expectancy rates, like those started to narrow um, as well. Now, sometimes it starts to plateau. So it's not so much that blacks are living longer. Sometimes it's whites living a little less longer toward the end of it. But, you know, it's important to note that those gaps are uh, there, if we look at uh, uh, the number of uninsured Americans, so we see the number of people who lack health insurance go down as a result of the Affordable Care Act, but the gap in terms of blacks who lack um, insurance or Latinos who lack insurance and whites who lack insurance, there's still this gap. So, like the ratio in terms of, of the lack of insurance doesn't change, it's just the absolute numbers started yeah. to change. Um, you know, if we look at hate crimes, so hate crimes. There's uh, some undulations, but it largely goes down over the course of the Obama um, administration. But blacks are still by far the group that would be most likely to be targeted for hate crime incidents, like, you know, even during the course of the Obama administration. You, you know, as you tick off all of these categories, it makes me realize why you would have pulled the transcript of the SNL sketch with Kerry Washington, in which you talk about how the absurd expectations how could we possibly have expectations that one person in the White House, no matter how he understands the African-American plight, could resolve all of those it, in, it, if he had 20 years in right. the White House? Right. I mean, so when you think of, you know, the 
200, nearly 250 years of slavery, the 100 years of codified segregation, and now the 50 years of post-civil rights where not all inequalities have been resolved, right? Yeah, nobody was going to fix this in eight years. Moreover, one person in one office isn't going to fix it. So, you know, I know we're having a debate now about separation of powers, and we're having debates about the health of our institutions. Um, but during this period, right, the president can't, can enforce laws if Congress isn't cooperating in terms of helping him, like, you know, pass laws that would actually empower him to do certain things, then that's actually going to make it difficult for him to be able to yeah. get certain things done. And I think we forget. The, and the other thing is, like, we live in a federal state, so it's not the national government's responsibility to do everything. Right. So everybody kind of has to play a role in these things. And if everybody is not working in concert, then they're going to be hiccups and not everything is going to get solved. So with that in mind, I want to get to our final break of the show, but here's the question I'd love to come back to. If it was unrealistic to expect that suddenly uh, hundreds of years of disempowerment and and uh, lack of social justice, uh, lack of uh, uh, systemic uh, uh, methods that would help the black community become equal – to what the white community has had. If, if you can't imagine accomplishing that, let's talk about whether maybe the most important thing that comes out of President Obama's tenure is that an African-American sat in the Oval Office in the White House, and you'll respond mm -hmm. to that. And also, let's look at whether he's paved the way for a presidential campaign this year that has two, and if Stacey Abrams decides to jump in, could have three African-Americans running for the White House. We'll do that with Dr. Ronder Gillespie after this. For the first time at GPB, we're breaking with tradition and trying a new, less intrusive style of fundraising. We're calling it GPB's Stealth Drive. It's a simple concept. Instead of breaking into programming with pitch breaks like we do during traditional fund drives, you'll hear short messages like this, reminding you of how essential your support is to GPB. So while you're thinking about it, call 800-222-4788 or donate online at gpb.org. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air... Take it out the trash. That's what I'm good at. By trash, I mean people who need to get whacked. Christopher Maloney stars as an ex-cop turned hitman in the series Happy on the Sci-Fi Channel based on a graphic novel. He also played a detective for 12 seasons on Law & Order SVU and a sociopathic inmate in the prison drama Oz. Join us. Fresh airs this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Um, Andrew Gillespie, before the break, I said one of the chapters in your book is called Was Obama a Paddling Duck? And you wanted to explain what that means to you. So uh, if you've heard of the metaphor of the duck that looks like it's gliding on the water, but yeah. it's actually paddling okay. uh, furiously beneath, the question that I wanted to see was, okay, so we can see that there hasn't been a there haven't been many changes in terms of sort of the indicators in terms of sort of whether or not black white inequality has been uh, reduced or whether or not black life has improved so I, I look at four cabinet level departments and i look at sort of how they talk about race in their press releases as they're talking touting their activity i love that section of your book Thank you. And so uh, you know, the things that I want to look at is how they talk about race and, and the things that they're doing. And so I do find evidence that they were doing things. Um, we can talk about whether or not they always made sense. Um, and so one of the interesting things is I see the spike of activity in terms of discussing voting rights in the Civil Rights Division at the Justice Department, usually around uh, election time. So in the quarters right before an election and in particular in 2012. Um, and I talked with a friend who is a voting rights lawyer. And one of the things that he explained when I looked at it was like, 
when I actually went back and I looked at the press releases, the things that were happening here were that um, the Justice Department was waiving preclearance requirements for counties um, across the country that had been covered by the Voting Rights Act because they were in states or localities where people had been denied their voting rights. Um, and they'd had 10 years of nobody complaining about how they were handling elections. And so if you had no, if you had 10 years of no civil rights complaints, you could apply to not have to submit your changes before this. And so, you know, one of the things that, that he explained to me was that, you know, that was uh, Eric Holder and the Justice Department's attempts to try to convince the Supreme Court that they could be flexible with how they applied the Voting Rights Act um, in the wake of... Instead so, of just wiping it out. Well, so <laughs> they were doing this before Shelby County versus Holder, which okay. happens in 2013, which then sort of wipes out preclearance yeah. um, in the Voting Rights Act. There had been a case in 2009 um, that also kind of foreshadowed that the Supreme Court might actually sort of like declare the preclearance provisions in terms of who defining who gets to be part of preclearance unconstitutional. Um, in this case, I think it's called Northwest Utility District of Austin, I think, versus um, uh, versus Holder. And so uh, what uh, they hinted there was that, look, the formula that you're using to determine who has to do preclearance is old. This should be fixed. Congress didn't fix it. Right. Congress still hasn't fixed it. Um, And so what the what the Justice Department was trying to do was they were trying to figure out what they could do to try to fix the preclearance problem, hoping that that would actually stem the tide of the uh, of the Supreme Court throwing the entire sort of preclearance definition sort of out. Right. And that didn't didn't work. So we can argue about sort of whether or not like the idea actually made sense. But I acknowledge that it's an attempt. You know, we could look at uh, President Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative. So this was an idea to sort of talk to at-risk boys. We think about them in terms of being African-American. But as I was reading through the data, it was very clear that it was also to target Latino and Native American boys as well. So the critique of My Brother's Keeper, which I think is an incredibly valid critique, is that uh, there are girls who live in those communities who have the exact same challenges. So why can't girls be a part of My Brother's Keeper? think that that you know is a completely valid critique um the rhetorical critique of president obama invoking personal responsibility at weird times so for instance in his commencement address at morehouse college where he's basically talking about black pathology to a group of high achieving african americans who clearly are not pathological right like that critique i think is completely justified on the other hand though the data suggests that there were people who were very sensitive to race and that they were talking about this um you know at the department and the departments that i and looking at that I knew we're going to be dealing with and addressing racial he, issues. He could be as tone deaf, he could be ter- terribly tone deaf on, on some issues of race, which was surprising to many, many people. At the same time, another, in other moments, his sensitivity was uh, acute. Right, uh, right. Look, can I, can we, can sure. we, we are getting, we've got just a few minutes left. Sure. And I don't want to miss an opportunity to talk to you about something. I said before the break, the question is, if, if, in, and, and I'm not suggesting this is your conclusion, mm-hmm. But uh, first of all, President Obama was not elected just to raise the social uh, conditions of African-Americans. He was elected president of all of the people. Uh, But the question becomes, as we approach 2020, is it possible that perhaps the single most important aspect of his uh, presidency was that he was a black man in the Oval Office elected by a majority of the American people. And if that's possibly part of the case, what does it say? Cory Booker happens mm-hmm. to be coming to town. He's probably here right now. Did Barack Obama pave the way for Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, maybe Stacey Abrams to be considered from the very beginning 
reasonably uh, potential presidential candidate. So there are two parts to that question. I'm going to answer the latter part first. Um, in terms of whether or not President Obama had coattails, I think one of the things that people looked for was whether or not we would see this spike in black office holding um, as a result of the Obama presidency. And at least during the time that Obama was elected office, if, if the figures sort of are, are, are comprehensive, the ones that I, I have seen would suggest that, no, we do not see this explosion in terms of black office holding that one would have expected. And so people would argue that his coattails in that respect were pretty short. I mean, and you cite Cory Booker as an example. I wrote my first book about Cory Booker, so that's when part of the reason. When he was mayor, when he became mayor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's part of the reason why Bill um, is is bringing him up. And in all honesty, because I, I met Booker in 2001, um, I thought Booker might actually be the first black president of the United States when I first met him. I had no idea who Barack Obama was um, in this election. So in, so I say that to say I'm not surprised that Cory Booker is now running for president. We just nobody, I think, thought it was going to happen in 2008. Um, and I remembered when I first heard about Barack Obama from one of my dissertation um, advisors, sort of when I was going to talk to him about my dissertation in graduate school. So he was telling me about this guy who was just about to win the Illinois Senate primary <laughs> in 04. So so I think that they've kind of been on a parallel track. It's just that Obama got there first yeah, yeah. Um, in, 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 in many different respects. So I, I view this book as probably part of a trilogy. So I've started doing work now on, on, on a book about Michelle Obama. And then I think I'm going to come back to this notion of civil society and office holding is certainly part of that. So it's something that I'll probably take up in another seven, eight years um, when I'm done with the other book. Um, but in terms of thinking about the, the question of the importance of symbol, um, you know, there's been a longstanding critique in African-American politics about how there's often a lot of symbol and not a lot of substance in part because black uh, leaders can get co-opted. They lack incorporation, so they're not part of majorities. Um, and, I, I, you know, I've, I've been heavily influenced by that. And I still think substance is more important than symbol. Um, and, you know, one of the sort of critiques against Obama that I'm responding to in this book is the critique that Obama was substantively important, was symbolically important, but not substantively important. And since I took forever to write this book and I had to write, finish it in the in the age of Trump, I had to sort of cons consider what the relationship was between uh, both President Obama and President Trump. And, and I think that pr President Trump's attacks on President Obama, his attempts to dismantle the substance of the Obama presidency, but to do so in really important and symbolic ways actually highlights how important symbols are. Yeah. Right. Um, so you can't have one without the other. And in fact, sometimes it's the symbol that actually gives you the credibility to be able to attack the substance. So, you know, I think about how President Trump wants to take credit for the record low unemployment um, in the African-American community. So one, he's not paying all his attention to trend lines to recognize that it wasn't like there were, unemployment was going up in black communities yeah, before right. he was elected president. So it's just following a long trend. But there's also this other issue there that like, no, he doesn't get credit for it because his personal politics and the optics of his politics don't match this, you know, important substantive reality in African-American communities. So this is a community that he has insulted. This is a community, you know, that he, you know, has supported white supremacists, right, which is an insult to African-American people. It's a threat, actually, to African-American communities and other communities of color and other minority communities. Um, you know, when we think about sort of the comments about, you know, calling 
uh, developing nations that are largely of color, yeah. asshole countries, like all of these things sort of belie the response. And so, you know, I think about Jay-Z's interview with uh uh, with Van Jones on CNN, where he says, you know, okay, so unemployment is low, but you treat people like crap. Yeah. Therefore, I don't give you credit for it. That's the, the if you get the symbol right, then you're more likely to get credit and support and buy-in for the substantive initiatives that you have. Wow, uh, Andre Gillespie, we are completely. That's going to have to be the last word uh, uh, for this show. Um, I'm really happy that we got to talk about your book, Race in the Obama Administration. Um, it's available on Amazon, although I looked today to see, and it said there were like eight copies left. So apparently you're either selling well or your publisher isn't giving Amazon <laughs> enough copies. Uh, but if you are interested, there is, this is, book is filled with so much wonderful data. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you were here to spend the hour talking with us about your book, which, by the way, uh, Andres uh, given us a copy that we're going to somehow figure out a way to raffle off during our pledge drive. Robert Jimison's going to make that happen for us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and you know we always are happy that you're a member of our rotating panel. So we'll see you again soon on Political Rewind. Thanks so much. That's it for us for today. We're not on the air again uh, tomorrow on Thursday, but we'll be back with you at 2 o'clock on Friday. And then that's a t that TV show version of the Friday show will be on Sunday morning on GPB TV at 9.